snatched up the document, gazed at it with haggard eye, and read it out, as I had done. It read as follows. In Snifles Yoculis Craterum Que Delibat, Umbra Scartaris Iuli Intra Calendes Decendi, Audas Viator, Et Terrestre Centrum Atinges, Cor Feci, Arne Sacnusum. Which, dog Latin being translated, reads as follows. Descend into the crater of Yocul of Snifles which the shade of Scartaris caresses before the calends of July, audacious traveler, and you will reach the center of the earth. I did it. Arne Saknusem. My uncle leaped three feet from the ground with joy. He looked radiant and handsome. He rushed about the room with wild delight and satisfaction. He knocked over tables and chairs. He threw his books about until, at last, utterly exhausted, he fell into his armchair. Now, I'm not too sure about that three feet in the air thing. I mean, to have a 36-inch vertical leap, um, I mean, sure, there are lots of athletes who can do that. Uh, probably even some people who aren't athletes who could. I mean, they are. I guess if you can jump 36 inches in the air, you, by definition, you're an athlete. But I was, I was speaking of the professional kind. Anyway, the, the uncle who, in this passage, who jumped uh, with the 36-inch with hops uh, is uh, Professor Otto Liedenbrock, uh, who is the uncle of the narrator, narrator, narrator of the story, uh, Axel. Um, and, uh, and Otto... Uh, professor Liedenbrock, the uh, uncle, is described as being a professor of chemistry, geology, mineralogy, and many other ologies. And uh, he is obviously, as you can tell by the name, in Germany. Now, um, so that's uh, so. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to judge the guy, but I feel like anybody, and and I, and and this is not to say that those of you out there who are professors of many ologies don't have a thirty-six inch vertical leap, but I just think that. It just seems unlikely. It doesn't. It. I. I don't think that the story ever really mentions how old Uncle Professor Otto Liedenbrock is. Now, of course, those of you who are familiar with a journey to the center of the Earth uh, probably already worked out uh, this reference. But uh, those of you who are not, now you know. Now, the passage that I read is from pretty early on in the story. I don't. I don't remember if it's the second chapter or the third chapter. It's. It's. It's pretty early when. When Professor. Otto and uh, and his and his nephew Axel are, are first getting this notion of uh, they might be able to you know take this trip to the center of the earth and they and they get the idea from having read this thing um, you know from uh, uh, what's the guy's name Arne Saknusem. Now, just in case you're wondering, uh, who uh, who is who is Arne Saknusem? Let's see, I got that here somewhere. Um, so it's a oh and by the way the message is coded sort of it's written in in it's like latin it's it's mostly like latin um but it's not exactly like latin and so you know it takes him a little while to figure out uh what exactly does this say and i think in the book there's something about he had to read it backwards or something like that um so i don't know maybe that's the beginning of pig latin Right there. Anyway, uh, so Mr. Arne Saknusum is, uh, he, now he was a real person, obviously, 
Professor Otto and Axel were uh, were uh, fictional characters in the mind of of Jules Verne, but this reference to uh, to, to this dude, uh, where is he? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he was a 16th century Icelandic alchemist. Uh, so that's the 1500s for those of you who, uh, get confused about that. Um, the 1500s, this guy, Arne Saknusum, I, I hope I'm saying that right. I'm saying it like I would if it were Scandinavian, I guess. Maybe, maybe I, so if any of you are listening in Iceland, uh, <laughs> tell me how I did. Give me a grade. Um, uh, but he, he's from a 16th century Icelandic alchemist and, uh, and it, it, evidently he had left behind, you know, so, so Jules Verne wrote this in 1867. I guess the story, yeah, here we go. The story actually, the, the, the story itself is in 1863. And, uh, so some 300 years prior, this, uh, this nutty alchemist had left this, this message about how he had, uh, found this, uh, basically it's a crater, it's a volcano. I think there it's, you, you go, if you go down into this, uh, this volcano, which I think in Iceland is something like Snæfellsjökull or something like that, Jökull. I think it's like Snæfellsjökull. Again, those of you from Iceland, how am I doing? Um, and and the idea was, see, because at this point in time, eighteen sixty something or other, there was some drilling going on in the world, as we know from our previous stories. Uh, but but it wasn't. You know, it was it was the early days of drilling uh, for oil and gas, and uh, so nobody had really thought about, you know, using drilling as a means to perhaps get uh, further down into the earth than anybody ever had. So, uh, uh, but 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 they did they did stumble on this 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 uh, this secret message that said if you basically jumped into this volcano at a certain time in July, you're going to find a passage and it's going to take you all the way to the center of the earth. Now, those of you who have been following along faithfully through the first uh, the first two parts of this exciting three-part series. Uh, that, <laughs> that was completely unplanned. I don't know. How in the hell did I think I was going to get through all this in the, in, in the first, you know, in one episode? Uh, and then I thought, sure, I'd finish it up last week, and here we are. So, um, uh, but anyway, those of you who've been following along, you, you know, you you may recall that I said we're going to talk about Project. Um, what is it called? Project. It's not. It's not Moho. Mo. Mo. Mojo. Mo. Moleskin Project. What is it? Project Molehole. <laughs> I think my brain. I think I like popped a couple of gears loose, trying to get through all that Latin uh, in a respectable fashion. So, uh, and Project Molehole is this fascinating story about uh, some people who tried for a few years to drill. Uh, further than anybody had drilled, they 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 weren't so much interested in setting a, re- a drilling record, um, <laughs> but uh, um, they wanted to get through the Earth's crust into uh, whatever lied whatever lies beneath that. So we're gonna get we're gonna get into that in a minute, and and I've been saying that for a while. But this uh, this it made me think of this Jules Verne uh, story. Of course, um, of course, Mister Verne had a knack for, uh, you know, not knowing exactly what the future was going to look like, but certainly seeing some shadows of what we, we might, uh, what, what we might try to do. And, um, it's a great story, by the way. Uh, you, you may have seen the movie. I don't know. I didn't see the, the, the whatever the, the movie with, what's his name? The guy, uh, that was also in the other thing with the 
with the Egyptian thing. Anyway, um, uh, I don't know if the movie was any good, but the book is excellent. Now, it also makes me think. Um, uh, it, it makes me think of this other thing. I don't. I don't know if this is still a thing for kids. Uh, but when I when I was a kid, back in the nineteen hundred and seventies, there was this thing we used to say. Like, if you dug a hole really deep, you could you could dig a hole to China. Do, do people still? Do kids still say that? Is that still a thing? I don't. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think if my kids ever said that. That would give me a clue. Uh, but you know, you, you, so the idea was, you know, well, China's on the other side of the world. So if I get my shovel and I dig deep enough, I might, uh, I might pop out on the other side next to some uh, little Chinese kid. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that I ever led, uh, as, as a kid, uh, that I, I mean, we, did a lot of things. Did a lot of things back in those days that I'm. I'm not sure kids get to do these days. But I'm. I know, I can't claim that I ever led a really serious expedition to try to uh, dig a hole all the way to China. But um, but I did think about it a couple of times when I was digging a hole. You know, how far would I have to go? Well, it turns out. Um, uh, and if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered. As I wondered when I was a kid, could you really dig a hole to China? I have here an article uh, on the great website Mental Floss. And this one is written by somebody, uh, somebody by the name of Matt Soniak. Uh, it's not too old. Seven, seven years ago. No, what? Seven years. <laughs> I can't do math today. This was written in 2011. That makes it 12 years old, but still recent enough, I think, to be credible uh, on this particular topic. And Scott says, Scott, what's his name? No, it's not Scott. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> Matt Soniak says, in theory, yes, you could dig a hole to China. But in practice, in practice, your journey through the planet might be hampered by the planet's molten core. It would get, it'd get, it'd get a little messy in that part, I suppose. Um, and uh, there's also, you know, the problem of, uh, you know, as kids, we just figured, well, China, you know, we're on this side of the world and China's on that side of the world. So all you got to do is start digging and you come out in the right place. But really, you know, with a, with a slightly better understanding of geometry, we know that you're going to have to figure out where to start on this side so that uh, you actually come out uh, in, in China and not, you know, somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean, for example. So I think uh, I think in here... Uh, what's his name? Not Scott, Matt. I think Matt Soniak says something about if you, if you started in Argentina, that would probably be the best place to start. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be tough if you just start from, from your backyard, wherever that is. Uh, however, however, he goes on to suggest that, you know, leave, if you leave out these, you know, these obstacles, let's just, uh, uh, let's just speculate. Let's have a little fun and say, well, okay, um, what exactly, uh, would you want to do if you were trying to dig a hole to China? <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is, this is actually a lot of fun. I'm not gonna, you know, maybe how much of this should I share with you? It, it's, it's a bit long, so I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go into it. Um, but he lays out, he lays out a reasonable plan for what you would need to do and, uh, and uh, what you would need to consider and how you might want to prepare for that hole that you're digging into China. Now, um, in the, in the, for, today's, for today's exciting conclusion, 
we're not going to try to, we're not trying to get to China. Uh, but what we are trying to do is get through the Earth's crust, and we're going to try to bring up a rock from uh, from the mantle, I guess, is what's underneath there. Now, um, uh, so so this story is not it, it is not specifically about. Um, oil field ingenuity in the sense that it was actually not an oil field project per se. However, the ingenuity of those uh, oil field geniuses who came before um, is, is what really enabled something, a project like this to commence. And even though the project failed, <laughs> it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the ingenuity of the oil and gas people uh, didn't uh, at least give it a fighting chance. I don't think it would ever even got started. And what goes around comes around because there were so many big brains involved in Project Mohol. Uh, so, many, so many people on that ship, uh, so many different scientists and engineers from all the different fields and, and, and disciplines and uh, the many ologies, uh, some of which uh, were from the world of uh, the, the, from the oil business. And uh, they were so nicely funded by the government, by the National Science Foundation or whatever it is. These guys solved a lot of big problems. They figured out some hard shit that uh, was in terms of being able to drill in deep water, and uh, and that uh, that that innovation, you know, eventually flowed back, flowed back <laughs> into uh, the oil and gas world, and uh, and continued to pr- to produce goodness over there. But this particular story begins in 1957. And there was this uh, group of guys uh, known as the American Miscellaneous Society. <laughs> That's what they called themselves. Uh, the American Miscellaneous Society. I, you know, if, if I don't, are they still around today? I don't know. They're probably not. But I would love to be a member of anything called the, the Miscellaneous Society. Uh, and you might not be surprised to know that they were a kind of a quirky group of scientists. Uh, you know, I think mostly like geologists and oceanographers and things like that. And what drew them together was uh, that they were all interested uh, in weird ideas about earth science. And uh, so they, uh, in fact, I think they had... Um, they had some sort of uh, tradition where anytime they wanted to give like kudos to each other, the one of the, if the, if the one of them had done something really spectacular, then they would uh, they would send him a, uh, a, a like a big stuffed albatross. <laughs> so, and then I guess I don't know. You hang that over the you know over the mantle, your fireplace or whatever. But uh, so these guys were um, they were fun. I think they were kind of fun. And two of the members of the American Miscellaneous Society, uh, one of which was Walter Monk, he was an oceanographer, and a geologist whose name was Harry Hess. I feel like I've heard that Hess name some, somewhere before. But uh, they, they suggested, they, they had the idea that they could, they could drill down uh, past the Earth's crust um, and, uh, and bring up a sample of the mantle. So 
For those of you who uh, don't do this stuff every day and uh, are a little rusty on your, you know, earth science, the crust, there's the crust and it goes down for, you know, however many miles and then, and then there's the mantle underneath that. But in between kind of, a, there's a transition layer and the transition layer is known as, uh, well, the, the short, the nickname for it is the moho. Uh, but it's, it's M-O-H-O, the Moho. But it's named uh, after, I got it right here somewhere. All right, here we go. Um, it, so there was, whew, okay, there's a guy named uh, Andrija Mohorovicic. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I got that right or not. <laughs> and I don't remember where he's from. Uh, it sounds Eastern European to me. Uh, there's a lot of C's in the last name with little little marks on top of them, and um, we're so we're so deprived. Our simple English just sometimes doesn't have all the uh, very cool and interesting things that other languages have. But anyway, um, on Andrija on Mohorovicic. Uh, they named so he was one of the, he was a seismologist. Uh, yes, they had seismologists even way back in the early 1900s. They were just beginning. Uh, in fact, um, okay, well let me not jump around. So this guy uh, Moho, uh, they they called this this transition spot uh, between the, the mantle and the crust the the uh, Moho Rovicic discontinuity. Uh, or Moho for short, thank God. And, uh, and that's why, uh, so now you see how the project Mohole is a project to drill down into the Moho uh, and through it, actually, and into the mantle to bring up a rock. That was what uh, Harry Hess and the monk guy, whatever his name was, uh, that's what they wanted to do. Why? Why did they think that this was a great idea? Um, well... <laughs> they were scientists and uh you know why not it's it's mysterious we don't know what's down there and we want to know what's down there and of course uh you know it could help us understand the earth better and it will be hard and interesting and we should do it and so uh, uh and so they started you know putting this this project together to get funding and da 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 da, da. and uh and oh, one of the things so Going back to the seismology thing, one of the things that kind of helped uh, grease the skids on this whole idea was that even from the early 1900s, um, uh, well, there's every quest begins with an old map. And in this case, there was an old map um, that they had, uh, seismologists had been putting together, uh, basically using taking measurements from earthquakes. We hadn't, we hadn't quite worked out how to send our own, you know, seismic waves into the uh, earth. But uh, whenever there was an earthquake, I guess, you know, a bunch of seismologists would scramble around and plug in their shit and say, oh, I got a reading, I got a reading. Um, and hopefully nobody fell into, <laughs> into the earth when they were trying to, these earthquake hunters. Um, but they had been putting a map together and it wasn't really like, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't, this was not a high resolution picture. Uh, but it did show that, you know, um, kind of all around around the whole earth you know whether it was the land part or the water part uh that there was some there was this one kind of point under under everything uh at a certain depth where the seismic 
you know, would start, the waves would start traveling much more quickly. And uh, so what they figured is that there's like a zone down there uh, where like there's this certain range where all of a sudden the material of what is that part of the earth is made of starts to change very quickly. And so, um, and that was, that was what, uh, Walter and, and Harry, Hett, Walter Monk and Harry Hess and all the other American Miscellaneous Society members said uh, that that kind of got them thinking we need to go down there and let's bring up a sample and see what it tells us. Now, this is where it gets complicated or where it begins, where it begins to get complicated because um, so the Earth's crust is a lot um, thinner you know, it's from the bottom of the ocean to the mantle or to the moho, the transition zone is not as far as if you're drilling, if you start on the land, obviously, because you get to go to the bottom of the ocean. So if you could start drilling at the bottom of the ocean, let's see, it would save you. Uh, it's actually quite a, quite a big difference. If you go to, I guess, you know, the right spot at the bottom of the ocean, um, it, it saves you uh, something like 18 miles. Yeah, I got it right here. So uh, it's around 22 miles. The Earth's crust is about 22 miles thick on land, and it's somewhere around four miles at the bottom of the ocean. So that's 18 miles of not drilling. If you could just figure out how in the hell are we going to go drill at the bottom of the ocean, and that's where all the innovation uh, and the really that's where the really interesting part starts. Now, um, and and so it was not going to be cheap, obviously. So they had to get some funding, which I mentioned. Uh, they got they got uh, they got government U.S. government funding from the National Science Foundation, and uh, and um, in fact, uh, the the reason. So so you might wonder why on earth would the NSF decide to fund this these crazy geologists and oceanographers, these kooky guys who want to go drill, you know, they want to spend all this time and money just so that they can drill through to a certain point, way down there and bring up a rock. Sounds a little bit like another thing that we funded where we wanted to go bring back a rock. I think I mentioned this on a previous episode. You know, why did, why did we want to fund this, this, you know, this humongous project? Who knows how much it cost? I don't remember the numbers, but why did we want to fund this massive effort to go to the moon and bring back a rock? Well, both stories have a common motivating factor. And that factor is that the Russians were doing it. <laughs> And so I feel like this could be a springboard for a, for a Jordan Driscoll episode. If you haven't listened to Jordan Driscoll's geopolitics, um, well, I guess geopolitics, uh, you should check that out. Don't, not yet. You got to finish listening to this and uh, make sure that you always prioritize my episodes over his. But when you're finished with mine, you should go listen to his. Now, um, but this would be a good, this would be a good takeoff for him because I'm just going to mention it briefly that one of the things that the guys that were trying to get the money, the American Miscellaneous Society guys said to the National Science Foundation, they were like, well, you know, the Russians are, are doing something like this. They're doing a lot of work in this, in this area and, uh, we ought to be doing it too. And so boom, the checks started rolling in and, uh, and so now our our project mohole team they've got the they they got the funding 
and they just have to figure out how are they going to drop a drill down through thousands of feet of water and then drill because you can't just, you know, you, you, I mean, <laughs> you can't, it's, uh, I, I, this is not simple folks. Um, I have some, oh yeah, here we go. Here's a quote from a quote from, uh, Donna Blackman, who was, a, or maybe she is still a geologist at the university of California, San Diego. Um, and she says, look, it's like, here's what it's like. It's like if you're trying to do some sort of work on the surface of the earth, on the ground, as those of us regular people call it, you're trying to do some work on the ground, but you're in a helicopter and the helicopter is a half a mile up and you're like trying to stick something down there and do something on the ground. That's what it's like trying to just like be in a ship and drill a hole at the bottom of the ocean. So this is what they had to figure out. And, uh, and I think I mentioned this before, but those of us who are, you know, have, uh, spent our adult life in a world where, uh, you know, deep offshore drilling is commonplace, you know, maybe we don't always think about this, but these were the guys that had to figure it out the very first time. So that brings us to 1961 and all these scientists get on the old Cus one, uh, ship and, uh, and set sail for the for Guadalupe Island off the coast of Mexico, and this is where, uh, if you recall, last week I had the passage from John Steinbeck's uh, diary, which was actually would become a Life magazine article, and because uh, he was there on board and he was covering the story. Um, there's a couple of I have a couple other uh, fun quotes from Steinbeck's diary here. Um, he did actually just record like the whole adventure for for Life magazine, and. Um, and in his usual, his usual style, uh, let's see here. He says that Cus one has the sleek race lines of an outhouse standing on a garbage scow. Now, if you, if you look at a picture of the Cus one after it had been, you know, rigged for this whole thing, um, it does, it looks like this giant clunky boat with a oil derrick on top of it. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's a, doesn't feel like you're going to win any races. He also says, uh, at some point while they were on board, he says, uh, we're pitching. So, uh, for those of you non-boaters, that means, you know, the, the boat is bouncing back and forth. We're pitching. So that when I asked Louie, the cook for my eggs straight up, he said, better have them scrambled so I can keep them in the pan. <laughs> so, it was not an easy sea journey as far as uh, sea journeys go. Uh, it was a pretty crazy environment, uh, a bunch of crazy scientists in a crazy environment, and they had to work out some. Uh, they had to work out some hard problems, uh, like how to hold the ship still in the middle of the ocean without dropping any anchors, and they also had to figure out how are we going to lower these like pipe segments down through because, you know, the ocean moves. <laughs> there are strong currents, so how are we going to lower these? these pipe segments through. And then uh, once we get the pipes down to the ocean floor, how are we going to drill uh, through miles of crust? Uh, even, if, even, you know, so it's four miles instead of 22 miles, but four miles is still a pretty long way to drill, especially when you, you know, you're, you're at the other end of the pipe with thousands of feet of water in between. And, um, and they had to figure out how they're going to, how they're going to do the thing that they set out to do, which is bring up sample bring up a, what we now call a core or they had to bring up a core uh you know the long uh cylinder that would 
get you know basically punched they're gonna like punch a hole and they got to bring that cylinder up and it's got to be intact right because if they want to learn anything from it scientifically they can't just bring up like <laughs> a handful of jumbled up crap right so so they had to figure all that out now the one um and all these things, you know, nowadays, again, we take this kind of stuff for granted, but, uh, you know, the first problem holding the ship still in the ocean, we now know that as dynamic positioning. But it turns out that these were, uh, as far as I can tell, um, unless somebody has, uh, and, and as always, feel free to uh, correct my facts if I get them wrong, but I think that the Project Molehole folks were the first people to say, okay, we're going to put, you know, an outboard motor on four different corners. And I'm not sure how they controlled it. Of course, nowadays it's all computer controlled. I don't know how they, um, I haven't, I haven't done enough reading to know how did they actually control the, uh, the, the four motors uh, to, to, to accomplish the dynamic positioning, to keep the boat in one uh in one place but but they did um they did that and uh let's see what else did they do um uh i I think it was four maybe it was more than that i I don't know how many they had but anyway you you get the point right like you got these you got these propellers that are pushing against each other and they keep the thing uh but that that needs constant adjustment and synchronization and so uh, they figured that out Um, they had lots of big brains on there they figured it out and uh and and all those other things you know and anyway they did it they did it um to a point uh, but all of this, there was so much engineering involved in all this that they decided, as we often do in technical technology type projects, uh, we often say, let's start small. Let's start with a pilot. Let's start with the, you know, the, the proof of concepts. And, uh, and they did. And so uh, what they did, what they wanted to do first was, well, we're just going to drill a few hundred feet into the floor into the ocean floor um, instead of miles because that will help us work out all those problems that we have to work out that, you know, like basically you can work out all the, all the challenges there. Uh, If you can do it, if you can hold the ship still and you can lower the pipe down through the water and then you can drill a hole and then you can bring up a core from a few hundred feet into the crust, then presumably you've worked out all the hard parts. And if you want to go farther, you know, it's just about drilling farther before you bring up the core. So that was their, uh, that was kind of their proof of concept. And they did that. Um, and it was a huge success. In fact, um, well, I mean, it was, it was, it was a success. They, they, they brought the thing up, but it was very exciting. Uh, in fact, uh, Steinbeck writes in his, uh, in his diary at this point, the first time they brought up, um, you know, a core, from the from the bottom of the ocean. Remember, this hadn't the bottom of the ocean hadn't been explored yet, and the first time they brought up a core, uh, Steinbeck says that the whole crew crowds around, cooks like everybody's like everybody's on the deck, cooks, seamen, drillers, uh, the the engineers, the scientists, everybody, and it's all and they're all frantic, and uh, and the scientists are having a little trouble working you know, the scientists are trying to like get the core and do whatever they're going to do with it. And, uh, and there's like this, like New York subway crush of bodies all around them. So it was very exciting. And even, uh, even the president, John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time, 
he even made a note of the, you know, kind of made, made a fuss about it and said that the expedition is a remarkable achievement and a historic landmark in our scientific and engineering progress. Uh, I'm sure somebody wrote that sentence for him, but the fact is that, you know, it was, it was regarded as a big success. And, um, uh, and so everybody was very excited. That was the, so that was the first mission. Um, and, uh, and their plan was to go back uh, and in a couple of years, uh, take the next two years to get a new ship, uh, maybe, you know, make some improvements. You know, I'm sure they learned a lot of things while they were out there and they're like, okay, that was good. Now let's go back. We're going to get a different ship. We're going to put things together differently. We're going to, nope. And we're going to go out and do it for real. Uh, in fact, Steinbeck was even, uh, even though he tended to be a little snarky, he was actually quite... Um, he was confident that it was going to happen, and he was, and he was even kind of excited about it. And he said, he said that he, he hoped that he was going to be invited back to cover the to cover the next voyage, which never happened. The new ship never sailed, and here's why: because, uh, well, there there were some. Well, bureaucracy got in the way is basically what happened. Uh, there was a, somehow the whole project got caught up in some bureaucratic political um, uh, uh, bullshit, basically, from what I can tell, from what I can read. And some people started questioning things and how did you spend the money and and, and who's this engineering firm you chose and how come you chose them instead of somebody, you know how this goes, right? Because like somebody's, somebody didn't scratch the right backs and somebody didn't do the right thing for the right people. And, and you know, who knows, who knows, but, uh, the whole thing got shit canned as they say. And that was the end of it. That was the end of it. They didn't, they never got to go back. And, um, so they solved, all, they solved, they solved all those hard problems, so that they could bring up uh, some mud from the bottom of the ocean. Uh, what they really wanted to do was drill through the Earth's crust and bring up some uh, rocks from the mantle. However, however, folks, uh, those in the science community do not regard, uh, and increasingly as time's gone by, do not regard Project Mohol as a failure because uh, of all the techniques that were developed. Um, the techniques that they developed were very successful, and those things just like laid the groundwork for like not only not only for the oil and gas world to be able to go out and do this stuff, but because um, I'm sure there were some guys, you know, there's some guys at the oil companies that were like, "Damn, they figured it out! All right, well, now we got a whole new." We got a whole new, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? There's there's more space for us to go and find more oil, and we can do the same thing. Um, but also, apparently, this some of this stuff paved the way for, you know, new fields of science. Uh, you know, exploring the ocean hadn't really been done much. And, uh, and by analyzing these samples, you know, I guess there's been a lot of discoveries made over the years and people have, have figured things out, uh, about the earth and about, you know, the past and you know how scientists do, right? Like they, they get like a little piece of something and they say, by analyzing this, I can tell that the universe is actually a little bit older than we thought it was. <laughs> so, so it was great in terms of the gifts that it gave to science. Uh, 
but it was not great in terms of accomplishing its mission. However, uh, I don't know, I don't know what became of all of those uh, quirky uh, guys at the American Miscellaneous Society. But my guess is, my guess is that they found something else to be curious about, and they moved on without too much uh, remorse because. That's just how those guys are. So there you have it. That is the story of Project. How did I do it? I actually got it. I got it in more or less, more or less in the customary amount of time. I think I'm a, I'm a little bit long. But now you know the story and that will conclude the impromptu three-part episode on the early days of offshore drilling. And I guess that means that next week I'm going to have to come up with a new idea. Everybody thinks that the world is round Everybody thinks that people won't fly off the ground Dig a hole to China Go get my shovel Dig a hole to China